often. I do want to say that for those of you that were here last Sunday, I misspoke and uh, thought about it. it. You know, Mondays are always a huge self-assessment day. I go, no, I did not say that. And I remember things, and it's just a lot of really self-criticism and evaluating and going, okay, i got to do better next time. As I was sort of going through the mental file and thinking about what I said, I mentioned that we hadn't had a financial series in two years, and that's not correct, because last year we did economos, the Greek word looked like oikonomos, and it was actually the year, be two years prior to that that we'd skipped. We did not do one the year previous, so I was just a little bit off. Uh, I didn't mean to tell a story, as my mama says. That's kind of a nice way to say a lie. Uh, I believe a lie is intentional. I believe I was mistaken. It wasn't intentional, so we did teach on it last year, but we don't ever do it more than once a year for two or three weeks. So today, this is the second week in this series on dollars and cents. And we are laboring to bring as much of a practical understanding. We're trying to get it out of theological, um, up, up there in the ozone, so to speak, and really make it practical so this is something that helps you in everyday life. Today, in this second one that we're doing, the title of the message is called Deal with the Debt Demon. Say that with me. Deal with the Debt Demon. Now, our text is found in first, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 21. And this one is a little bit longer than you've probably heard your whole life from King James. The King James says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I love the New Living Translation. That's the copy of the New Testament that we give away to people because it's very, very understandable. And it says it this way this time. Read it with me. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And so we really see that uh, in terms of it sort of expanding, not just our heart, but what we're longing for, the things that we are desiring, what our focus and our attention is on. And, and I want to give credit this morning to Josh Stark, who is also a Bible school seminary person, and he, he mentioned this to me. I knew this and had forgotten it, and so I just want to thank him for give him the credit for bringing it back to my attention. When you look at the Greek word for treasure here, it's the Greek word thesauros. We get the English word thesaurus. What, what is a thesaurus? but a treasury of words. It is a whole storehouse. You remember a thesaurus is different from a dictionary because it gives you all the synonyms, words of like meaning, and all the antonyms, words of opposite meaning. And it's a treasury of words because it helps you to, to get very, very specific in what you're attempting to articulate. You can uh, get down to a pinpoint in terms of what you're trying to communicate to people with a treasury of words called a thesauros. So when Jesus says this, this is just so cool to me in one more layer of the word, because if you'll think about this, what, what, what you treasure in your heart is what you talk about. That's the words that you're speaking. What did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the what? The heart, the what? The mouth speaks. So that's another way of saying the same thing. You have this treasury of words that actually is a revelation of what the desires of your heart are. And so this morning, this is our series text. We're attempting to, to memorize this. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I want to ask you to stand with me one more time. Let's get our text today for this message this morning. Very simple, one line, one scripture text from Proverbs 22. Read it out loud with me, please. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave to the lender. Now, I love the ESV because it's a little stronger than the King James. King James says the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, how many of you know you can be enslaved to debt? 
So this morning, we want to be able to speak to that culturally and biblically in terms of how God can set us free. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this time together in your presence. Thank you that you are a great God. Thank you that you graced us today. The greatest blessing of the Lord is the presence of, of himself. Thank you that you're here in this place. You've said where two or three can get together, I'll show up just to see it. God, thank you that you've come today just to see what's going on in a place where people are laboring to learn how to put Jesus first. God, we honor you. We ask today that the name of Jesus be made famous in this place, that every person leave today with that name and that awareness on their lips and in their hearts. God, we're, we're careful to acknowledge how much we need you. I'm desperate for you, Lord. I ask you today to communicate through me, Lord, that the gospel is bigger than. Thank you that, Jesus, you paid the greatest debt, and that is the sin debt. You sent your son, Father, and all we like sheep had gone astray, and everyone had turned to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus became the sin bearer, the offering for our sin, and he paid the price and said, it is paid. It's in paid in full. God, thank you today that you help us to see that the gospel is also inclusive of every area of our lives. Lord, our spirit, our soul, our body, our relationships, our finances, our minds, all of these things, God, we submit them to you today and we ask you in Jesus' name to give us a fresh start, a new understanding, and how great your gospel is in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I want you to direct your attention one more time. The lights are coming back down. We have about a three-minute clip today from our friend Jerome Offord. If you don't know him, he comes to the 9 o'clock service. Well, I'm Jerome Alford. I'm married to Linda Alford. That's one of the most important things that I can say. <laughs> uh, second, I want to say hello to all the folks that make the 1045 service because I don't get a chance to see you very often since we make the 9 o'clock. I was raised in small Baptist churches. My father was the church treasurer. And to those of you that may not have experienced this, the small churches would take up the collection uh, after the music and during the time that the Sunday school superintendent was giving his report, my daddy being the treasurer would go back and count the money that was collected and post it on the board that was in the front. And that gave everybody a chance, I guess, to look at that and figure out what percentage of what was given that they gave. But tithing and the offering was keyed to the fact that you need to tithe because the church needs the money. So in a lot of my early years, when I had a chance to help with music and do some other things in the church, then I kind of felt and grew up kind of feeling like that was an in-kind contribution. And it, to me, it didn't become important to tithe. Well, about probably 15, 16, maybe 17 years ago now, uh, I got involved in Victory Church had a chance to sit under Pastor Michael's teachings. And then all of a sudden, it became much clearer what the tithe meant. It was not the money that it took to run the church. The tithing was an act of worship. 
it was it was that part that you know and the Bible is pretty clear about the promises made it also has a lot to do about being a cheerful giver then I, I started just carefully tithing uh, not to brag but you know all of a sudden the, the, you didn't miss the money God replaced whatever it was that I gave and it was easy then to become a cheerful giver and you know I can't say that everything has been roses ever since then I've been through some testing there was being self-employed as an engineer there have been a few years in the last 15 that uh, income was kind of hard to come by my employees made more than I did and I guess I probably could have been on welfare a time or two there but then you know God uh, continues to come through I never did go hungry never missed a house payment and the whole family has been blessed Josh, great job with the uh, video. This morning as we look to this, our text, the message text for this installment, number two today, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, found in Proverbs 22, verse 7. The Bible says, just as the rich rule over the poor, so the borrower is slave to the lender. So as we jump in today, I just want to give you eight principles, three of which I think are spiritual, maybe, I think maybe four and four. Four spiritual, four intensely practical. Okay, so we're going to cover both elements because this is a spiritual thing as well as something that's intensely practical. I, I, I believe that when you realize that you're in trouble, in debt in this culture, and it is something that has become immensely more typical uh, as I've gotten older. I grew up in a house of uh, both parents working. Um, I was born in 1960, mom and dad, dad was a mechanic for N.S. Garrett and Sons Farms, mom was a designer at West Memphis Flower Shop, and so she was an hourly employee, dad was salaried on a monthly basis, and, and uh, that meant many times during the, the growing season that he'd leave before 6 a.m. and not get home till 10 o'clock at night, and there were days that I didn't even see my dad, that's how hard he worked, just providing for us, and it's not because we had a whole lot of stuff. Many times there's through some of those years, it was really just about trying to make it from one week to the next and putting food on the table. And then some prosperity started to hit. Uh, Dad got a raise and some, several raises, and actually Mom did too, and we started enjoying a little bit different level of lifestyle. And by 79, I graduated high school, and I'm in college at A-State as a freshman. And I started getting these cool things through the mail where J.C. Penney and Sears and Dillard's and Goldsmiths and Tallheimers at all of Memphis wanted me to be on their team and, and wanted me to be able to enjoy their goods and were extending me all kinds of opportunity. I remember when I got my Tallheimers credit card, I went and bought me a Sony Walkman for $179 and slid that card. And it was painless to slide that card. And that was the coolest thing. And I walked out of the store with a new Sony Walkman. They'd just come out about six weeks before and I had one and I couldn't tell the difference <laughs> until the bill came. And it was pretty cool because they only wanted $10. <laughs> and so I just wrote them a $10 check. I'm a college student, got a little job working about 20 hours a week, and that's cool. And, and so first thing you know, I've, I've, I've got a Goldsmith's card, and I've got, that's, that's Macy's now for some of you young folks. Okay, that's when the real store was there. I'll leave that alone. Anyway, uh, so Goldsmith's, Dillard's, 
J.C. Penney, Sears. My mom and dad were born with Sears bills and died with Sears bills, and I just thought everybody had a Sears bill your whole life, you know. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, and, and I'm in college, and all of a sudden, it's um, here we go. It wasn't Citibank at the time, but all these various credit cards started taking a real interest in me, especially by my junior year because I'm about to graduate, and they expect me to be a fine, upstanding, successful young man that's going to make his mark in the world and bring home the bacon. A lot of money. And so all of these opportunities start arriving, and I felt like, hey, this is a great chance to be able to establish my credit for the future. I want a good credit score. And so, and I was paying all my bills on time, doing two and just fine. And the 80s rolled into this thing, and we have this what is known as the massive conspicuous consumption decade where malls started sprawling and, sp and spreading all over the place, and, and teenagers are hanging out the malls for their fun, and, and, and kids literally become marketed toward in terms of uh, all the advertisement because kids have expendable money and income more than they've ever had before. 80s turn into a great, very prosperous 90s. And everybody, for the very first time in this country, is carrying massive consumer debt, something that my folks never had. There were no store cards. Now, they, they financed a car. We didn't have multiple cars. We had, our family had a car. And I borrowed it when I was 16. And they said that the way I actually finagled away into getting the car was I wrecked that one, and Mom and Dad went and bought a new one, and they got that one fixed, and that was now my car. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. And it was a really cool automobile. It was a dark green with a yellow top, Delta 88 Oldsmobile. You're talking about being cool in high school. However, let me just say, it rolled and it started when I wanted it to and I was thankful to have something to ride. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? And so, that's just the kind of background that I, I, I grew up in. I, I enjoyed a family that it was important to them that they were people of their word. Honesty and integrity ran way deep in the veins of my parents. My mother pridefully pronounced regularly among over, around the family that she had taken care of the finances all of those years up 63 years of marriage before my dad passed and she bragged that she had never been late on any payment in 63 years she set the bar way high and let me just tell you that I don't have that testimony <laughs> I've had a couple of late payments more than a couple especially through some difficult seasons. And especially after I rolled into the 90s and Dawn, I asked Dawn and she said yes and we start building a home, not literally constructing, but we're building a home, a marriage, a life together. And we've got a son and then shortly after that a daughter on the way and life hits and you're just trying to just make it through and, and trying to you know, excited that when maybe you get a little cost of living increase. And we came here and started, we planted Victory Church with nothing. I mean, literally just a couple of family members and one friend came to help us get this thing going. We didn't start out with a church planting team the way most new churches start today with literally $100,000 backing them, three churches supporting them, already have your musician, your minister of worship, and a children's 
director and, and somebody preaching, maybe a preaching team and elders and all of this sort of a, uh, a commissioning team sent to be able to put it together. We just came to town. It's like I was jacking the beanstalk. I had a couple of magic beans and it was faith and grace in my pocket. And I scratched a hole in the ground and said, God, you're going to have to help us raise this thing up and raise up leaders and raise up a team of people. And God has been gracious. It's been difficult. It's been hard. And, and there have been years where there was no raise because we were living Sunday to Sunday, paying the bills, paying the rent. I would always have to tell Dawn, Dawn, do you realize, baby, we've never, ever had to hold a check to wait for another offering the next week for us to be able to be paid so we can put food on the table and she would always go, yes, Michael, God has always taken care of us. It's been amazing, his, his goodness to us. And I learned to tithe at a young age. I've always had that part down. God's always blessed and his favor has been on my life. But I have to confess to you this morning, and what I'm going to be bringing to you for the next few minutes is really my testimony in terms of where I've been and how God's delivered me. Because I became a real child of the 80s. Massive, massive conspicuous consumption, clothes and was a, just about a watch collector, nothing expensive. We're not talking about $10,000 Rolexes, but man, I had, I had probably 20 watches because that was the only piece of man jewelry that I could wear, and I don't even wear them anymore, you know, because your phone does everything now, camera, watch, everything. And, uh, and so I, I got into that whole habit and never did really put together an emergency fund, and cars would need repairing, and the water heater would break, and a transmission would go out, and, and a kid would get sick, and He's older now, and he's playing competitive ball, and he needs a certain kind of catcher's mitt, and that's a couple hundred bucks, and a special kind of bat, and that's $300 for a stinking baseball bat. And, and, you're, and my daughter's taking violin lessons, and I'm going to talk about what those instruments cost. And we were renting. We rented for years. Dawn, Abby never owned her own violin until three Christmases ago when I bought her one, and she now has her very own personal great, great, wonderful instrument. But, I mean, I've, I've been there. I've done that. There's probably nobody in the room that could just outright buy your house and pay for it. Maybe you can now because of a successful business that you've built. But when you started, you couldn't do that. You couldn't buy a house without a mortgage. 1950s, we've ended World War II. We have a tremendous economic boom. Jobs are all over the place. We've got the GI Bill. Men are coming home from the war. And Guys who would have never had an opportunity to own their own home prior to that now have an opportunity to go back and get a college education, to get into a house, build a home. Uh, middle America is booming and exploding, and with that we start to see the movement toward consumer credit. Okay? And with that, great blessing, great economic boom has come, but with that we've also moved away from what our grandparents live by, and that is put off immediate gratification for a future day and save so you can pay cash for it and we go get it right now because after all I can get it with just a little bit of an interest payment added to it. Are you hearing me? Amen. So before we know it, one card becomes five cards become ten cards and listen to this. From the FICO uh, company, the average American has nine credit cards. TransUnion, a credit reporting agency, says the 50.2 million American households that carry credit card debt owe an average of 15799 on their credit cards. And these are 2012 numbers, okay? When you combine that with auto loans and other fixed payment loans, average household debt soars above $60,000. Now, that's not counting your mortgage on your house. And the trend is not improving. 
As surprising it may seem in the negative economy that we have, easy credit is still available. The credit card industry mails out more than 6 billion credit card offers each year, sending an average of six offers a month to each American household. Now, the crazy thing is this. When my Abby was three years old, Abigail Smith got a Citibank credit card offer that came to the house. She's three. Now, somebody messed up somewhere. It's craziness. The first thing you've got to do to get off this, this merry-go-round, this, this debt consumption wagon that we're riding, is number one. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, stop borrowing. Somewhere we've got to make up our mind that we're not going to keep living and be a slave to. Now, you know, there's all kinds of slavery. You can be chemically addicted. You can be sexually confused. You can, be, you can be food addicted. You can be shopaholic addicted. You can be work addicted. All kinds of aholics narcotics, hauling, all of these different kinds of things that you can get into. But let me just tell you, we have gotten to the place in America where we have stretched ourselves to an extreme point. The national debt at this point has topped $17 trillion, which means $70,000 is on the head of every individual American right now. Now, consumer debt on top of that, our individual personal debt, let me just back up and say to you, it is not a sin to borrow money. It's not a sin, but the Bible does say this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, the greatest sin debt that Jesus paid, or the greatest debt he paid, was the sin debt. But I want you to see that he's also delivered us not only from the bondage of sin, but from all kinds of other bondages. And this is a present American captivity. It is a present American slavery. It is not a sin to borrow money, but when we are mortgaging against our own futures and the future of our children and our grandchildren, it becomes sinful. Say those last three words. It becomes sinful. Number two, how can we deal with this? Number two, confess and renounce covetousness. Now, that's not an everyday water cooler word that you hear at work, covetousness. It is a clearly biblical concept both Old Testament, New Testament, listen to this. The 10th commandment says this, Thou shalt not covet. Covet, which is kind of a word that you have to stop and think about what it means. It very simply means envy. It, it, it means, the, the Bible says in the commandments, Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, or thy neighbor's ox, or thy neighbor's donkey, or thy neighbor's field, or the land, or his children, or any of those things. In other words... It's not just wanting something. It's wanting something that belongs to somebody else. Now, I really don't think that's the issue with most folk in terms of their coveting. I think you just want yours that's going to be like theirs. Or maybe it's a model a little bit better than theirs because you're a little bit competitive, keeping up with the Joneses or trying to outdo them. Are you hearing me? Don't look at me like that because, listen, we wrestled down the same kind of cultural worldly kind of thinking that is all around us. Just because Jesus covers us by the blood and we've got a ticket to heaven and we know that if we died right now that we'd be in his presence, there is still a very real present struggle in our thinking because we are marinated in this world system. And we have to stop and let the Spirit of God renew our thinking. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. If we brought anything into the world... If, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now listen this morning as Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12 verse 15. This is in red in your Bible. He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And we have never before in history been so possession rich. Be honest with me. Don't wave your hand or say amen. Just listen. But I know that this touches everybody in the room. Our closets are bulging. You've got several drawers in your kitchen that you struggle to close because it has so much junk in it. Okay, we've got garages we can't park cars in, outbuildings that are full, and storage rental buildings that are bulging that we're paying 50 bucks a month on, on stuff that we haven't even looked at in years. I have boxes in my attic that came from my move from North Carolina that I didn't unpack when I moved on Carlisle, and I picked them up and carried them with me and put them in the attic at my house in Geelan. And I'm, here recently I thought, I need to figure out, I need to find out what's in those boxes. I got some stuff I forgot I had. And we're so overwhelmed with stuff. And we're so overwhelmed with stuff that a reality TV show talks about hoarding. People who can't let go of a piece of trash. And it becomes a mental brokenness because we're so attached to things. And Jesus says, careful, guard yourself against this kind of longing for stuff, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust for other things. Wealth is dangerous, but we can learn how to properly handle the danger. Sometimes God has to take us through some surgery, though. Some of us may need a little bit of plastic surgery and cut up some credit cards so that we can get healed. Can, can I have an amen? All right, listen to this. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. There's nothing more typical. There's nothing more cliche than a rich person unhappy and medicated. He's got everything he wants in the world. Trophy wife, brat kids, <laughs> Porsche in the garage, Range Rover, got all the stuff, all the toys, all the trinkets, got the country club membership, but just is not happy with, not happy with himself, not happy with, with her, usually on number four or five. Are you hearing me? And there's nothing more typical than somebody who has all the stuff but still is looking and searching and can't find a place of personal fulfillment. Number three, if we're going to get this helped in our lives, number three, we need to repent of impatience and the need for immediate gratification. i got to have it and i got to have it right now. Wait is a curse word for my generation. W-A-I-T, wait, wait. God will always answer your prayer. God never leaves a prayer unanswered. He may say yes, he may say no, or he may say wait. And we don't like to hear wait because wait involves time. Wait involves me holding back my desires for a future. Sometimes I'm so consumed with the good thing in front of me and God is trying to say, wait, I have a greater thing you hadn't even seen yet. Don't settle for something less than. Come on, somebody. Because the good can become the enemy of the best. The, the, Paul the Apostle says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. M repentance is not... Merely kneeling at an altar and crying and sobbing or wailing or snotting and bawling all over the place. 
And, and repentance can be, can be that. Repentance, bottom line is, you can do all that and still not repent. You can make a show and not really repent. Repent means to change your mind. Change your thinking, and because your thinking has changed, you change your behavior. Turn from it. Turn around. You turn. Repentance is you turn. You're headed one way in your life, and God confronts you with, and when you repent, you turn around and determine to go the opposite direction of where you've been going. You start thinking differently. Hallelujah. Number four, set a budget. Well, how are you going to make that one biblical? Set a budget. Most families in America don't have any idea where their money is going, how much is coming in. And let me say this to you. There is no way you can be a faithful steward over what God has trusted you with when you don't know what's going in and coming out. Don't shout me down. Luke 14, 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down? Everybody say, first i got three things I want you to get from this. Say first, so it's priority, sit down. You can't do this on the run and count the cost. Say count the cost. So it's got to become priority. First, sit down. Have a conversation with your spouse. This breaks up more marriages than anything other than communication. <coughs> marriages are broken up, first of all, because of communication. Secondly, because of finances. And if you get your finances messed up, it's going to mess up your communication. And the third one is sex. And if you're not talking and your money's messed up, there ain't going to be any of that other. <laughs> Did he just say that at church? I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong church. I guess y'all are too spiritual. Y'all don't... Anyway, I better stop before I... Hush. First, sit down, count the cost. I put up a thing on the board last week, poverty theology on the left. The other side of it was prosperity theology. The middle of it was stewardship theology. Prosperity theology came along in America because it knee-jerked the poverty ideas that had gripped evangelical Christianity for a couple of centuries. This idea, especially in my heritage, in Pentecostal evangelicalism, they, they said, God, keep the preacher humble. We'll keep him poor. Because they believe that poverty gave you the greatest opportunity to truly be spiritual. So poverty theology says possessions are evil and God's will is that you not have any. It judges spirituality by how little you have because it emphasizes all the verses, lay not up for yourselves treasures in earth where moth and rust do corrupt and blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it emphasizes all those and it ignores all the other scriptures on the other side of the spectrum that basically say God delights in the prosperity of his servant. 3 John 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He is Jehovah Yiri, the Lord who sees and provides, God our provider. And so poverty theology grabs all of these suffering, poor difficult time, testing kind of ideas and puts them all together and sort of packages it for us. And, 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 and Bible guys came along and said, you know what, there are more promises from God in the Scripture. I don't believe that mess. And so many times the way we always do, and, and I would say I don't fault those guys any longer because they're really kind of there, especially if someone has come in this. Many times God will take you and let you experience the other side first because History and theology and everything that drives what we do is all driven by the pendulum of history. 
we swing from one side of an extreme into the other before many times we're able to come to a place of balance. Prosperity theology says not godliness with contentment is great gain. It says gain is godliness. It basically refuses to think that there will be any kind of suffering or difficulty in this life. It judges spirituality by how much you have. Stewardship theology says, no, that's a ditch and that's a ditch, but the road that we're to walk on is this middle ground of recognizing that the same Bible that says, lay not up for yourselves treasure in heaven, also says God will pour out His abundance and open the storehouses to you. He will give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. But we can go back over on this side and it will say, share with the poor. And so there, there's always this tension and there's a tension that is good for us because stewardship theology will speak to where I'm at. If I'm in a place where my consumer credit is up to here and I'm, I'm literally just being absorbed by this desire of the, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for other things and I'm, I'm hoarding and I'm, and I'm pulling in and I'm spending and I'm shopping and I'm buying and I'm just sliding the plastic, then God will take those poverty scriptures to show me that I need to let loose of some of this stuff because it has a stranglehold on me. But when I'm in a time of testing and he says, trust me, he'll emphasize and literally make large the, the verses in the Bible that if I will put my trust in the Lord, he will meet every need that I have according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So how is that? It's a tension. It's there because God gave us that on purpose. Stewardship says God trusts you right now with as much as he can at this moment. It says be faithful in the little that you have and if you will... He will make you ruler over much. So guess what? You learn to walk faithfully, save, make good investments, make good decisions, learn some financial intelligence in the how you're handling your money. And God says, I will put my favor on your labor and I will bless your work and I'll establish the work of your hands. I'll prosper what you put your hand to. How many of you know when you can have stuff and it not have you, God will make you a conduit. He'll make you a channel. He'll make so much flow through you that it'll absolutely astound you. Number five, get an emergency fund. Get an emergency fund. I operated for years without one. It was crazy. This thing started piling up on me, and before I knew it, I thought, man, I am really some kind of pretty good creative financial wizard, and I would roll stuff off of a couple of credit cards onto a new one that I could get 0% interest on. We refinanced our house, and I paid everything off, and guess what happened? I'm just, I'm just being real with you today. Guess what happened? After we refinanced the house and took up that equity out of the house and paid off all those credit cards, because it was an instant thing, I was probably pretty careful for three or four months, and before I knew it, I was right back in the same boat, except this time I was worse off because I was out of my equity in my house, and I had credit cards now that were starting to stack up again. And I woke up and realized, I can't keep doing this. And it got so bad. Five, six years ago, my personal story is that we were $47,000 in credit card debt alone. Our family. Guys, I, I can't tell you how it happens. It just happens. Your car breaks down, and you can have a couple thousand dollars repair, and you, you, got, a, you got a new transmission got to go. And well, there ain't no buying no new one, because forgive my grammar, but that's just how bad it is. And, and you have a series of things that happen, and major repairs in the house and a system goes bad and 
major repair in a car, and a kid gets sick, and yada, yada, and it just starts stacking up, and before you know it, you get to the place where you're actually charging your groceries. And I've been there, and I never went to the church, I never went to the finance team and said, I need you to bail me out, because I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. We help folks all the time here at Victory, but I've never stood in that line. I've never done it, never taken advantage of that. And though, let me just say this, though there are people in this room who I don't know, I don't have anybody in mind, so don't think I'm talking to anybody, though you may have been able to hit the financial reset button and file bankruptcy, I felt like I couldn't do that as a spiritual leader. I felt like I, know, I owed Jesus as a leader of the gospel in this community. I said, God, I've made this mess, and if you will help me. And I didn't feel like I could go to the church and say, and they weren't in a position at all to give me a raise. And there were some seasons there where it was just basically really trusting God because we were on the front end of this thing and, and, and living week to week. There were times when I would tell my wife, she would be concerned about what we were, we were, what we were going through, and I would say, baby, you know, we've never had to hold a check. We've always been able to put it in the bank on Monday morning and be able to been able to pay our bills, pay the house payment, pay the car payments, and put food on the table. And the Lord's always blessed us, sometimes from unexpected arenas. So I started looking around and said, God, I can't keep doing this. I've, I've got to make some changes. And I said, Lord, what, what can I do? And he asked me the question he asked Moses. He said, what is in your hand? And I, 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 literally, I heard the Lord, not out loud, but I heard him in here. He said, what is in your hand? And I said, well, I've got all kinds of keyboard skills in my hand. And it's like the Lord just kind of, I didn't see his face, but it's almost kind of like, well, duh. And so I started teaching kids piano. And it's crazy how the Lord sometimes, you don't even think about the abilities that you have, but I believe that God has gifted every one of you in this room with something that you can have a passion about, that you can actually turn into income if you'll just pray about it and let the Lord show you what you already actually have in your hand. Chad Gaddis started a whole earth-moving business to the point where he owns a couple of tractors and backhoes and a bulldozer and all kind of stuff. And it all started on one Saturday afternoon where they showed up to help put some sod in my house when we bought our new house on Geelan in 1996. And he's out there pulling a piece of fence around with a four-wheeler. And he, Chad came up with the idea. He said, you know what? I could do this and make money. And he's turned that into a, a second income for multiple stream income for his family what I'm trying to tell you is God will show you what you have in your hand that you are passionate about and you're good at and you can do it with one hand tied behind your back half asleep and you can do it because you enjoy doing it and if you'll figure out a way, God will turn it around so you can get paid to do what you love to do. Right. Maybe even turn it into a great business. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. All right, I've got to wrap it up. Get, get an emergency fund. Listen. Listen to this. The Bible says in Proverbs 21.20, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Another, another version says, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spins it up. In other words, you just eat up all your seed. Everything you get, you, you're spending it all. You're just consuming it all. And so we were living like that. And I've always tithed I've, from the very beginning. I learned that from my family. And because of that, God would bless us and God would sustain us. But I believe I lived a few years without just some common sense financial intelligence, just making some wrong decisions, doing what everybody in this room has done. If we tell the truth, 
Some of you are there right now, and I'm trying to tell you I'm not preaching down at you. I'm preaching to, to you to give you some hope to say, if you will set some things in motion, you can turn around here in a couple of years and be debt-free and be out of that bondage in the name of Jesus. Amen. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Dave Ramsey really touched me with his book, Financial Peace, a number of years ago. He says, pay your minimum payments, discipline yourself to save at least until you can save $1,000 in an emergency fund. Every family in this church ought to have $1,000 that when you write your check down to zero in your checkbook, there's still $1,000 in there. In other words, when you write it down to 1000 that's your zero, and you don't use that extra money to go buy a dress or new shoes or a shotgun or some golf clubs. Are you hearing me? But it's there, and you keep living that way, and you turn it around and you have a couple of thousand dollars in emergency fund. And then you have 5000 in an emergency fund. And you keep going. When you've been married 30 years, you ought to have more than that. Okay? Now, it, this is what I've said to my son. Because Drew is 27 and he's making crazy money. Crazy money. He, he gets on a plane every week and he flies. He's a salesman. He's doing transportation logistics. He could sell anything. He's a talker. He's, he's good at what he does, he's sharp, he delivers, he connects land, sea, boat, air, rail, all of this, and moves stuff for folks that are wanting their products moved, and he's making a killing. And I've been saying to him, now son, I beg you, really, now right now, you're 27, if you'll just make some little investments right now, just take 100 bucks a month and invest it in an index stock fund, and don't touch it, you got 40 years on your side till you're 67, you can retire a millionaire and not even miss it. Listen, this, this is so important that you hear this. If, if you will begin to recognize that you've got time on your side, and this is what I told him. I said, it doesn't matter what your gross is if you don't have any assets. You've got to save some. You've got to invest some. You've got to think about the fact that you're going to meet Mrs. Wright here pretty soon and want to get married and you want to, ha want to have a down payment on a house. Save some of this money. Don't just be jet-setter playboy running around all over the country. You know, Save some money. And I said, please, please don't make the same mistakes that your mom and I did. We're, God's blessed us now. And last October, I saw myself get totally clean, zeroed out from consumer credit cards. So thankful. Are you hearing this this morning? Uh, number six, negotiate your interest rates. Very, very simple. I don't, I'm not going to take time to read the verse. Proverbs 6, 1 through 5 says, if you've put yourself up as security for a friend's debt, then basically go beg yourself out and beg them to erase your name off of it. And it's, it's a principle that basically says, look, when you know you're in a bad situation, at least go try to negotiate. Because let me tell you, these, these credit card companies don't want to have to write you off as a bad debt. And if you'll just say, look, I need, a, I need an interest rate reduction. Pull it down from 21.99 to 16.9 or 14.9. Let me, there are people in this room right now. I don't know who you are, but I'm just talking about just statistically. There's somebody in this room right now that's paying a credit card with 25.99% interest on it. It's crazy. That happens. It's scary. And you keep getting digger. You, you keep getting lower and deeper and digging the hole of debt deeper. And this is what, listen to this. I want you to see this quote from Albert Einstein. Put that up for me if you would, please. Everybody read it out loud with me. Here we go. Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. I think that it would probably be a safe assumption 
that everybody in this room has at one time or another, and there's some folks that are financially secure in this room, and there's some of us that have just gotten that way, and there's some of us that are struggling. And I want you to understand this. Einstein, brilliant, genius, he says the eighth wonder of the world is this thing called compound interest. And if you understand it, you realize that you've got to figure out how you can make it work for you. And if you don't understand it, you end up paying it. This is the deal. We do not want to continue living our lives where we are slaved to, to Chase Manhattan Bank or City, City Bank or Capital One or Dillard's or whatever. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Because if, 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 you're, if you've got a house full of the finest, greatest looking stuff, but you're literally biting your fingernails down wondering how you're going to make next month's payment, how can you even enjoy the stuff? Come on, somebody say amen. All right, let me roll on through this. Number seven, I got two things and I'm done. Plan the work and work the plan. Get yourself a budget. I, I, I tell young people all the time, listen, as you get married, come on, just reveal it all. Just, just show her what you got. How much consumer debt do you have? How much consumer debt do you have? We've got to come together and make a plan before we join this blessed mess together. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to get out of this hole and be true and be real and be honest and then get a plan, plan your work and work your plan. The Bible says commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Another translation says commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Dave Ramsey says it this way in Financial Peace. He says, there's a tool called the debt reduction snowball. If you will take the lowest credit card on which you owe, pay everything else the minimum payment, and put what little extra you can, and there are ways, come on, you can hold yourself a yard sale and unload half of that junk you don't need, and some of you can make a couple thousand dollars. Literally, a few hundred at least. Come on, am I telling the truth? Just unload that stuff, you're not using it and figure out a way, maybe pick up a little small part-time job or whatever, and, and then, or pray and ask the Lord, maybe there's something you can do at home. Come on. I mean, there are folks that have turned grandma's coconut pie recipe into million-dollar businesses. Why, why can't the church do that? Why can't the people of God have a little initiative and a little bit of labor, a little bit of work, and a little bit of ingenuity and see God bless them in a great way and not live every day from can to can't? Don't shout me down. All right. He says, take the one that's the lowest, put extra on it until you get it paid off. But then when you get that paid off, don't loosen up and go, oh, I can go out now for a big $200 meal with the family. Or I can go buy me a new dress. Or I can go buy that new shotgun. No, you stay disciplined and you take now the extra money that you're paying on that first one that's paid off and you roll it over to the next card that you've been paying with the minimum you're already paying. That card is going to get paid off faster, and you start to do a debt reduction snowball that Ramsey teaches in his book called Financial Peace. And he says, literally, he's seen young couples that have removed from their credit as much as twenty to thirty thousand dollars in consumer credit in a two to three year period. I mean, we're talking about knocking out major debt. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But it's going to take discipline, and you need to get an emergency fund, negotiate your interest rates down. And then begin to do that debt snowball. Last one and I'm finished. Have you got anything out of this today? Number eight. Thank God for the testimony of how the Lord has carried. I don't think that I'm any better than someone who did file bankruptcy. But I'm thankful that I can say that by the grace of God, I was able to move away from all of those financial difficulties. And it can be done. 
And it's great to have extra income and some expendable income and be able to bless other ministries. Because we tithe here and we offer on top of that. And I, I bless other ministries. Not, not to brag, it's not what it's about. But, but I give regularly to St. Jude and I give regularly to the Memphis Union Mission helping folks and money out of my pocket regularly at times. I believe there were years that I never did anything because I, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh all the time and all this hard conservative kind of stuff. And I don't want to offend anybody. But all this, you know, and hearing it in the pulpit, if you don't work, you don't eat. And I didn't have any compassion, period, for folks in need. And it's like one day God said to me, you need to give it worse than he needs to receive it. And so I loosened up. I don't do it every time. But I learned to listen to the voice of the Spirit of the Lord in my heart. And I've had a chance to pray with people. I've had a chance to meet some really cool people that were in a bad place in their lives. Watch tears roll down the face of an old man with leather wrinkled skin and the bluest eyes I've ever looked into in my life. And I told him Jesus loved him and prayed for him. And he hugged me so hard I didn't think I was going to be able to breathe. And he said, I thank you. I needed to hear that. And God can use you to bless and minister to people if you've got a little bit extra that's not tied up in credit card debt. Are you hearing me this morning? Last one and I'm finished. Keep your relationship with God fresh. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I know technically that Paul is speaking to the yoke of legalism. But I think the broader application here applies. Whatever the bondage is, if it's sin, if it's debt, if it's bad habits, whatever the yoke of bondage is, Christ has come for you to be made free. Don't submit to another yoke of slavery or bondage in your life. No matter what it's called, whether it's economic or whether it's spiritual or whether it's physical, whatever kind of bondage or slavery it is, Jesus has come to set us free. Listen to Luke 4.18 and I'm closing. Scott, if you would come, please. The Spirit of the Lord, Ben, come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I believe the gospel speaks to every area of my life and yours. The greatest debt that's ever been paid is the sin debt. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. The new song that I now sing is Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. He paid my sin debt. But thanks be to God gospel is not just only about a home in heaven. It's about healing in my body. It's about right thinking in my mind. It's about healing broken relationships and putting lives back together. It's about restoring fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and husbands and wives and parents and children. It's about bringing peace to communities. It's about settling the prejudicial bigotry that divides. It's about reconciling. The gospel speaks to all of that gospel will speak to the social problems that we face in West Memphis and Marion if we'll apply the gospel to it. The gospel will speak finally today, this morning, to your financial predicament. I made a mess. 
And I'm thankful that God helped me get over my pride. And I could even tell you this story this morning because I told a little bit of it last year and how God has delivered me. And you know what? I want to say this. If God had blessed me with a lottery winning, I've never bought a ticket in my life. So don't go out here telling that. I don't care. That's up to you. You do whatever your conviction is. I've just never done it. I've never bought one. I know, I know people who do spend a dollar a week just out of fun. I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily. When it starts to get excessive, that is a sin. I just want to say that if the Lord had blessed me and some millionaire had left me a million dollars and I'd paid it all off at once, I would have gone through it and I've been right back in the same boat that I was in because God took me through the journey. He took me through the process that didn't let up, that kept the pressure on, that kept me pushing and growing and letting me experience a little victory here and there. And the first one got paid off and the second one got paid off. And thank God I'm starting to see my way. I, I, I'm not having to choke from, from the debt around my collar. The, 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 the shackles of debt are starting to loosen up a little bit. And I started to get some more hope and I kept pushing and I kept pressing and I kept trusting God. And a miracle did come through and a miracle came through there. And before I know it, I'm working in my labor. God puts his favor on my labor and he blesses it but he's made it last long enough and he's made me walk through I walked myself one step at a time down into that cave of debt and he could have in one swoop raptured me up out of there but I'd have probably walked right back into another cave of debt but he turned me around and he says if you'll repent and for every step you walk down into it, you'll start to take a step toward the light of some financial intelligence and putting your trust in me and paying your bills on time and, and working a little extra and seeing me bless what you put your hand to. Guess what? Because I walked through the process, there's something down on the inside of me that hates that, that says, no, I'm going to give a testimony to other people that they can be set free and I will not be in that trap again. In Jesus' name. Your answer is not an instant quarter of a million dollar win. It's to trust God for a quarter of a million. Some of you may need that much. But it's to realize that God's grace is going to give it to you in little increments, a little bit at a time as you put your trust in Him. He will get you set free from the bondage of financial slavery. Somebody say amen. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. God, help me, Jesus. Lord, in the labor, where sometimes I feel like I'm travailing trying to birth a baby, God, I ask you that it not be about my struggle to communicate it, but it be about the clarity of your word, that Jesus has come to set us free, to proclaim liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind. God, I was blind about simple financial principles. You opened my eyes and let me begin, begin to see. And Lord, you, you brought me out of debtor's prison. God, thank you. Thank you for your blessing upon my life. And I thank you that you can do that in the lives of these people here. God, I thank you that that begins, first of all, by knowing that the greatest sin debt has been paid. If there's a person under the sound of my voice right now and you've never crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, take my life, be Lord of my life, save me, forgive my sin. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. Heads bowed, eyes closed, I want to just ask you right now, if that's you, 